Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates, High Returns podcast with me, Pete Wargent. I'm here as ever with Stephen Moriarty. G'day, Steve, how's things? Good, man. Good. How are you going? I'm very well, thank you. So we're operating on three different time zones today, so uh, a COVID special, if you like. So uh, one of my uh, mantras over the past decade in particular is the importance of international travel. So you get perspective, you learn about the world, uh, you learn about people, you learn about what systems work and which systems don't. I've spent much of the past 10 years traveling as much as I can, spent several years living in East Timor, also Australia, spent a lot of time in Europe where I am now. But this all kind of pales into insignificance next to today's guests from Africa to Australasia to Asia, back to Africa. So I won't even try and run through the chronology because I'm bound to get it wrong. What I'll instead do is say welcome to the global value hunter, Tim Steyermoser. Tim, welcome. It's great to have you on. Thanks, Pete, and thanks, Steve. Steve and I actually met in Japan many years ago. I was living in uh, Asia at the time, but um, as you can tell from my accent, I was educated in Australia. Uh, my parents are originally from Europe, but I uh, grew up in Queensland, um, studied at ANU in Canberra. You know, it was all about Asia rising. I studied Korean at university in addition to economics, and I had uh, spent some time as an exchange student in South Korea Back in uh, 94 and 93, I also worked there for a brief period of time. So straight out of university, I, I went to, to work in uh, stockbroking in South Korea, uh, having met some guys over there who were in the financial industry when I uh, was an exchange student, noticed that they um, seemed to make good salaries and it was interesting work. And that was uh, the beginning of sort of my love affair with investing, if you like. I hadn't really done any investing uh, as a young person in Australia. I'd taken the odd course at uni, financial economics and uh, one or two other things that had applications toward investing and obviously accounting as well. But I had no clue about stock markets or or what they did or how you analyse them or anything. So I kind of got dropped into the deep end and I was working at the research department at an old school sort of research-driven brokerage house. Um, WR Carr was the name. It was swallowed up by a bunk into swears and then eventually acquired by Credit Agricole, I think. But back then, you know, research-driven equity brokerage for foreign funds was um, quite a good lucrative industry in uh, most of these Asian emerging markets as they were back then. So that's how I learned the ropes. I quickly worked out that a lot of my uh, colleagues who were the analysts, they didn't really have a clue either. You know, markets are funny things. And uh, a lot of my learning subsequently was, um, you know, real world experience and reading uh, the classics, Buffett, Graham, you know, all the usual suspects. And then 
ended up moving to the Philippines a few years after that. I'd, I'd uh, met my then uh, girlfriend, later to be wife, now ex-wife, long story. Um, <laughs> We've I, all I been there. A, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've worked um, for a small boutique research uh, and newsletter publishing company in Manila that was run by uh, an Aussie guy and an American guy. Uh, so that gave me an experience. It's more akin to being a buy-side analyst. You know, you were analysing stocks that you would put your own money in and you were excited about the story and you would write up the story for the audience. So that that was, um, you know, a slightly different twist than, than doing sell-side equity research. Um, that also made me begin to invest my own money and run portfolios and that sort of thing. After a few years of doing that, I wondered whether I was perhaps missing out on, you know, the, the high salaries and fast-paced corporate lifestyle in, in banking and broking. And I got a job in Hong Kong with Lehman Brothers uh, in the early 2000s, long before they uh, ended up going bust. And that was, uh, I'm glad I did it because I worked out quickly that I was not a big company guy. And after about two years of doing that, I just got fed up and, and resigned and went back to the Philippines working for the same guys. I guess by... 2008, 2008, 2009, I, I had sort of accumulated enough capital that I thought I'd uh, retire. It had always been my goal to retire at 35 and I thought I'd missed it because it was already 2009 and I was turning 36 that year. But I quit before my 36th birthday and decided just to manage money on my own and one of my old colleagues from Lehman Brothers had actually uh, looked me up, he'd found me again and uh, he'd been reading my newsletters and, you know, he'd come into some money and he decided, oh, well, I think the way he put it was you, you were the only guy who knew what he was doing when we were working at Lehman Brothers together. So, you know, here, here's some of my money. Why don't you um, have a crack at managing that? And as it turns out, he and I are now business partners in uh, ST Funds Management, which is our Australian licensed firm that um, is the investment manager for the African Lions Fund. But subsequent to the Philippines, um, I met my now wife, who's from Indonesia. We met in Hong Kong and we lived in Bali for many years before transitioning across to Africa. Last September, I guess it was, we came here full time. I was born here in Tanzania uh, back in the early 70s. My parents were doing volunteer work here. Uh, instead of going into the Danish army, you could choose to do two years of overseas volunteer work. And that's what my father did. So I came along when they were living here and I came back in 2018 with a group of friends to climb uh, Kilimanjaro and also to get my Tanzanian birth certificate reissued because uh, I needed that for a, another passport application. While I was waiting for this birth certificate to be reissued, I was cooling my heels at the hotel and, you know, sitting by the pool reading the, the local papers and I, I realised there was a stock market here and uh, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'd never even thought of investing in, in Africa. And as it turned out, that time coincided with uh, a low in the investment or stock market cycle here. There'd been a big boom 2014 to 2017 when the market opened up to foreigners, a lot of capital came in and prices got really stupid. You know, I started sniffing around and there were some companies that looked interesting. I went back after that trip kind of thinking, well, you know, I should, I should really invest. So I did. Uh, markets open to foreigners. You just need to open a custody account and you wire your money in and out freely. It's not a problem. And I then came back for a research, proper investment research trip, and I brought my wife and uh, my first daughter 
we, we've had another daughter since then. She she was still uh, in utero at that time. So I guess she came along, but she didn't know it. And we did a safari after this research trip. And, you know, my wife wasn't dreaming about living here, but uh, at least I introduced <laughs> her to the place. And as, as the cards uh, fell into place years later, it wasn't a completely foreign uh, environment to come to. And COVID, you know, that helped drive that because my world before, uh, and I'm sure you're a bit the same, Pete, having travelled so much, my world before involved being based in Bali, travelling freely up to Hong Kong, down to Australia. You know, I sit on a, a board or I used to sit on a couple of boards in Australia listed companies, so going down to Perth or Melbourne for board meetings, visiting family in Queensland, visiting friends in Hong Kong, Singapore. Hong Kong was still my business base when I was based in Bali. But that all kind of completely imploded when COVID went a lot, when came along. You, you just can't travel freely. Australia and Hong Kong were some of the tightest border closures of, of any. You know, there's three weeks hotel quarantine in Hong Kong still. So I decided uh, during the six months initially, uh, March to September of the lockdown, I was, I was stuck in Bali basically, which, you know, is no real hardship. But I'd, I'd started this Global Value Hunter website, uh, started building a bit of an audience, went on a couple of podcasts, and I, I thought, well, you know, maybe there's actually demand out there for an uh, Africa Frontier fund, which is what I was doing with my own capital mainly. I mean, I've done a lot of different kinds of investing over the years, including sort of, you know, deep value activist and event-driven stuff, arbitrage, you know, traditional value investing, I've come to realise, uh, as a lot of people eventually do, that the best sort of investing uh, is just to put your money in a great company and not touch it, you know, let it compound. And most of those great businesses around the world have been trading at ridiculous multiples, right? You look at all the Western markets, very difficult to find anything. Okay, briefly, during the COVID panic, you might have been able to pick up stuff, but I mean... If, if we're truthful, who was really loading up on, on great businesses at that time? Yeah. I think you, not many people had the guts to do that. The window was very small. I mean, there's a, a V-shaped recovery. It was one, basically one month. Exactly, yeah. But for my own case, uh, I looked around the world and I, I worked out that, okay, African frontier markets are not everyone's cup of tea and obviously they come with a, a different kind of risk. But there's lots of... Uh, very durable businesses here that generate uh, outsized returns on equity simply because there's not the competition. Uh, you know, if you're an entrenched brewer in Zambia or Tanzania or whatever, no one's going to come and try and take you on when you've got 90% of the market. What happens is the multinationals come in and they buy these companies and a minority of the company remains in public hands listed on the stock exchange and that's what you can buy into. So when I looked around Africa, I could see you know, the proverbial wonderful businesses at fair prices or even cheap prices. And that just wasn't available in Australia or the other developed markets. And that's the direction that I've gone in. Uh, the fund that I now run, African Lions Fund, you know, we basically buy the top one or two businesses in these countries that are, you know, true blue chips. But because they're in, in frontier markets, there's still a lot of growth. And as I say, you know, the, the returns on equity are, are high and attractive. You know, this period has coincided with um, low valuations. Steve will have a, a lot of questions for you on the uh, the logistics of uh, the investment process 
and also um, how you construct the portfolio and so on. Just uh, one thing that strikes me there, I hear these days a lot of people call themselves, uh, you know, citizen of the world because they've lived overseas for six months or a year. I mean, even, you know, with my family, diaspora, I've got brother in South Korea and so on. Uh, but it's, I mean, that's on a whole different level from obviously your experience with um, the parents from Europe and growing up in Denmark and Australia and Africa. Uh, clearly, this has enabled you to think differently from the herd, which is obviously one of the benefits of traveling and seeing the world. And I've certainly read um, around the traps that you, you have a habit of never paying full price for anything. So, you know, from travel to hotels and restaurants and even the fact that you're traveling during this period, uh, the, you're, you're on the other side of the COVID curtain, as you put it. I didn't live in uh, Bali or Indonesia, but I was very close in East Timor. And one of the mm. things um, there about a, a developing country like Timor, there were no financial markets. Um, and probably similar to Tanzania, there was no formal citizenship process, very rare for, for foreigners to get citizenship in a country like Timor. Now, they did have a petroleum fund, and I spent a bit of time uh, working at the World Bank and the Ministry of Finance, but there was no real financial markets or stock market or anything to access. Uh, but the one thing East Timor had, you could see it very clearly because of the poverty and also the previous genocide, the, the very, very young demographics, which is obviously going to be a tailwind in the years to come. Now, so tell us a bit about your, your big picture thesis for Africa. So uh, obviously Africa does have um, a demographic tailwind behind it. So is your, your big picture thinking for the, for the continent as a whole that in four or five decades time, you're thinking we've seen this movie play before in, in Asia and you're expecting to see similar rapid growth over the next 40 or 50 years. Is that about right? Yeah, I mean, obviously the the micro is is quite different. You know, you're looking at these high quality business owned by multinationals and whatever. But when you look at the macro picture, uh, exactly right. I mean, Asia exploded uh, over the last seventy years, I guess, if you go back. Uh, but the population there has now peaked in a lot of countries and is actually trending down, you know, set aside places like Vietnam, which is, you know, on a different cycle because of the Vietnam War, they had the baby boom after that, Indonesia and some of the countries in West Asia and the subcontinent. But if you look at the traditional East Asian emerging markets, they're all rapidly ageing societies. So while there was a demographic sweet spot, you know, earlier in my career, that, that's really over. Even China's workforce is now uh, shrinking. So... I looked at the population pyramids for Africa and for Asia in the 1970s. So Africa today is almost exactly the same as what Asia was in 1970. So it's about a 50-year uh, difference. Now, is the economic development and, and so forth going to play out exactly the same with, you know, labour-intensive, you know, low-wage production for export, as was done in Asia, is that going to be applicable to Africa? Probably not, because there's a different set of circumstances. Africa has a lot more in the way of natural resources. But as you say, the labour force here is also uh, exploding. There's going to be $3 billion by the end of the century if you, if you take some people's estimates, although I, I struggle to believe that Nigeria is going to end up being the second most populous country on, on Earth, uh, just given the constraints on, on the environment and the landmass. 
It's very much uh, a big part of the long-term thesis. Uh, the fund, you know, has an investment horizon of at least five to ten years is what I tell potential investors. But my own investment horizon is, is you know, much longer than that. I'm investing now for what the world will look like when my daughters, who are six and two, are coming into the workforce uh, in 25, you know, 30 years' time, basically. And... Some people, you know, you tell them about the exploding population in Africa and they say, oh, my God, how terrible. You know, everyone's going to starve, there's no jobs, there's going to be chaos and war and, and all this. That's the glass half empty view. I, I take the glass half full view. You know, people said the same thing about places in Asia that were, you know, undeveloped backwaters uh, in 50, 50 years ago. I mean, South Korea in 1970, I mean, was it? Uh, anything like it is now? No. Japan after the war, I guess Japan started its industrialization process a lot earlier. But, you know, the, the East Asian tigers at one time were also very undeveloped and, and backward and, and all they had was a young population that was hungry for, um, you know, success. Now, one of the, the differences between Asia and Africa, obviously the education system is different. The institutions in Africa perhaps are not as, uh, as well-structured and, and deep. Uh, so there are challenges, um, but Africa has a lot of advantages as well. I mean, there's a lot of room here. You know, people have no idea how big Africa is. All of the maps that you see uh, are kind of distorted, um, but you can fit, you know, US, China, India, Japan, all of Europe, into Africa with room to rattle around. So, you know, I, I brought a, a colleague here from Singapore and, uh, you know, he, he'd read some of the population projections and Dar es Salaam, where I'm sitting now, is, is the biggest city in East Africa and is actually projected to become one of the 10 biggest metropolises in the world uh, by, you know, 2050. And I, we landed and we're driving in from the airport and he's looking around thinking, um, where are all the people? You know, you said this was a, a population-dense uh, place. And I said, yeah, but it's not like Asia. You know, there, there's room to rattle around in Africa. Um, and that's the big difference. Uh, so it's got the natural resources and the room for agriculture and, and industry if, if that does develop. So, you know, I, I take a glass half full view and the, the demographic dividend at the moment, you know, you've got a lot of young people. Uh, because what always happens is that, the, you know, the birth rate declines slowly uh, at first. Um, so you've got a lot of people that need to be uh, educated, housed, clothed, fed, uh, and there's a smaller pool of workers at the moment that's doing all that lifting. As those kids become productive workers themselves, the whole thing flips on its head. You know, there's going to be lots more productive people and fewer people that are dependent on them, both older people and, and younger people. And you're already seeing that in a lot of countries. And it'll it'll happen, you know, in, in our lifetimes. You know, it's, it's hard to predict these long-term trends, but if, you, if you've seen it happen before in Asia the way that I have, it, you know, it becomes more of a reality in your mind. I guess. Sometimes when people have those preconceptions about a place or even an entire continent, in Africa's case, when you actually talk to them they think well you know it's dangerous and there's poverty and so on but you very often find they've literally never been there and therefore the mm. perceptions are based on media reports or whatever else and um, for example Korea that you mentioned as you went to Korea at the start of 
uh, last year uh, pre-COVID and you see the tech revolution going on and Steve and I have an investment in a company there, uh, South Korea Telecom. And as you mentioned, if you think about a city like um, Shenzhen, you know, basically went from a a fishing backwater to, you know, one of the biggest economic hubs in the world, just in one generation. So obviously you're looking for global value and you follow those uh, principles and you've already sort of hinted at uh, finding those quality companies and the long-term compounders. Uh, so, Steve, I know you wanted to ask uh, Tim some some questions on his principles of investing and the process. So I'll flick over to you. Yeah, cheers, Pete. Yeah, I just the, the one thing that it struck me, Tim, when you were talking about your background was a sort of Jim Rogers kind of, you know, like adventurer. Jim Rogers was talking about frontier markets and, he was one of the ones who actually got me interested in Russia a long time ago when I read his book, you know, and stuff, which has been great. And one of the questions I did have is because you've been in so many parts of the world, does your methodology for a business change? Like do you look at Africa and go, all right, I'm going to need to think about the return on equity or the sovereign risk, the labour relations or, you know, different from Africa, uh, from Asia, Australia, you know, developed markets, that sort of thing? At a micro level, uh, not really. I mean, uh, a business is a business. Um, Africa I actually find more comfortable for me as an English-speaking person with sort of a common law uh, background view of the world. Asia is a bit more sort of exotic and and has its own set of rules. And obviously, you know, if you're not fluent in in the languages, I'm just thinking, you know, like a mate of mine is now looking at investing in Vietnam. Uh, I looked at Myanmar before it kind of went pear-shaped again or whatever. But I'm I'm much more comfortable analysing businesses and and managements in – English-speaking countries here in Africa because of the colonial history that have the common law system than I am analysing, you know, Korea as an exception because I am fluent in Korean and I lived there a long time and I do understand the culture. So in that respect, Africa is a little bit more familiar and easier. And, you know, the Corporations Act here in Tanzania, for example, is based on the old British uh, Companies Act and, you know, the Aussie one I'm very familiar with having, uh, you know, been through some activist battles and and doing arbitrage and stuff. So there's a lot of overlap. And I guess the the one thing that I do analyse differently is um, sort of the way that minority shareholders are are treated in different places uh, is quite different. And here in uh, East Africa, certainly, West Africa, I'm I'm not as familiar with yet. Um, You know, there's a very formal relationship and corporate governance is actually quite good with these, um, you know, blue chip companies. Asia can be a little bit more of a mixed bag, as I'm sure you know. There's a lot more family controlled companies that happen to get listed on stock exchanges there. And their view is not really that the minority investors are, are yeah. partners in business. They're, they're more of a nuisance to them uh, yeah. in a way. So, they're, not very, they're not very shareholder friendly, are they? They're, they're exactly, sort of a bit like, yeah. shut that, up and let us run the company. <laughs> exactly. And if you've got good people doing it and they, they have lots of skin in the game and, and they're honest, then that's great. Uh, but if they're not honest and they start playing games, that's where you can run into trouble. So I've been pleasantly surprised here in uh, in Africa with the level of 
corporate governance that you can find. And a lot of that, I guess, is because of these multinationals having come in and, and bought majority stakes in, in many of the businesses that we, we own, and they kind of impose that template on, on the local system, and, and it, it works uh, quite so well. My perception, which is probably incorrect, is that there would be a higher degree of sovereign risk. That's one question. But the next one is also, it sounds like Africa is reaching out to the rest of the world and therefore, you know, they're being more obviously more globalised. So therefore they're, they're much more, in a way Asia was too, a much they're much more attuned to saying, all right, what are we got to do to get foreign capital? Let's get people like yourself in to sort of go, well, this is how they're doing it in other markets. And they go, all right, well, you know, how do we move our processes forward so foreign investors can invest with confidence? Is that a, a, a fair view? Yeah, um, very much so. So what Africa does not have a lot of is, is capital. Um, capital is scarce and capital is expensive. You know, interest rates in, in many places are in the teens. Okay, some places have also double-digit inflation, so real interest rates are not as high, but real interest rates are still very high in most places. You know, that's that's justified in a way because you can also generate high returns on capital because it's so scarce. Uh, yep. So, yes, you know, there is a mindset uh, among African governments and, and administrations, policymakers, that, they do need to make their economies attractive for foreign investors. Now, some of them score lots of own goals. Others, you know, they, they get it and, and they have success. Uh, you know, there's 54 or 55 countries in Africa, depending on who you listen to. Not all of them are by any means investable. Uh, so, you know, we're very careful about sovereign risk, which you also raise. But there are uh, plenty of markets that are investable and, and the risks are, you know, they're not minuscule, uh, but you get paid in terms of excess returns on capital for taking on that risk is the way I, I view it. And going back to what I, I said uh, sort of in my introductory remarks, the other thing you find is that if you can find a business that's been here doing well for 20, 30, 40 years, it's often in such a strong competitive position because others don't want to come in and take the sovereign risk and compete. So... Ironically, a certain level of risk in the mix can actually work to your advantage as as an investor, uh, which I find interesting. <laughs> right, because I was think I was just sort of thinking there's a there's a fine line between you know monopoly, oligopoly, and competition, which drives efficiency. You know, like to sort of if you got one brewer, well, you got one brewer, and if he tells you to get stuff, well, guess what? You get stuff because there's no one else in town. So there's that. In most industries, you find there's at least two. So there'll be a dominant player, and then right. there'll be a challenger. Banking is more oligopolistic, I guess. Um, yeah. You know, Australia's got the big four. Tanzania's got the big two. Right. Okay. Uh, I mean, there's there's lots of banks here, but most of them are insignificant, and there's yeah. two of them that have about sixty percent of the market between them. So obviously, you know, they're not colluding, but because there's only the two uh, that are that big, the returns that they can generate are, are really quite nice. And, uh, I mean, the classic sort of virtual monopoly uh, is Safaricom in Kenya, the, the mobile carrier in Kenya, which is a fantastic company. Um, and they also own, you know, the rails for payments uh, in the country that, uh, right, empathic payments, mobile money payment system 
is yep. what everyone uses, right? And they've got 90% plus market share. So that that business has done fantastically well over the last uh, two, two and a half decades. You, you do see that in the valuation as well. Uh, as a value investor, <laughs> I haven't to, um, to buy yet, but let's, let's see how it evolves. Right, right. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers. Cheers.